Acts chapter 20, we're going to do verses 17 through 38 today. And I'm just going to read the first verse to set the stage and, and we'll, we'll go from there. Now, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. If you were here last week, you know Paul is on his way back to Jerusalem after his third missionary journey, which has been like a five or six year journey. So it's been a long time. And he's on his way back. He wants to get back to Jerusalem in time for Pentecost. So he doesn't want to go back to Ephesus, but he's going to stop at Miletus, which is 30 miles south of Ephesus, about a two day journey, so that he can talk to the elders without having to go to the city itself because he doesn't want to waste any more time. He's got the collection that he's taking to Jerusalem for the Jewish Christians there. He's got all the great companions with him that we talked about last time. But he wants to talk to these Ephesian elders. And this is perhaps one of the, the best speeches that we get from Paul, as if we could compare them, but there's so much to dig out here. And it got me thinking, and this is what I want to say, maybe have a longer introduction today than usual. I'm sure you all are aware that in recent days, recent months, there have been some very high-profile Christians who have walked away from the Lord publicly and proudly. You've seen some of that. There have been musicians, worship leaders, authors, and none of them have been people that I've been particularly connected to, but it's been very public. It's been very proud, you know, and they've, they've said things that have been discouraging and potentially damaging for some people to the faith. And the scariest thing about these situations is that in every one of these cases, it seems, these people said, I've been faking it now for several years. I haven't believed in Jesus. I haven't believed the Bible. But I've been leading worship. I've been preaching at conferences. I've been doing whatever for years. And what is scary about that, they had lost their faith. They were no longer Christians. And nobody noticed. Nobody around them noticed. Nobody reading their stuff or listening to them noticed. You know, this kind of Christian mass media that we have now, where there is a proliferation of books, there's a proliferation of podcasts and blogs, and Christian music has, there's never been more of it, and there's social media that Christians are, are running, YouTube accounts and Facebook and Instagram and all the rest. This is a relatively new thing. There's always been Christian authors, there's always been Christian music, going back to the time of the apostles when they were writing letters to each other and they were writing hymns and things like that. But on this level, where we have such access to it, and not just access to it, but access to all of it, right? Just a couple bucks and you can get every Christian song on your phone. A lot of it is free. It's just out there for you to download. That's a relatively new thing. So we need to make sure that we're thinking about how are we going to go about this because it's new. And I think if you combine that with the present situation in the actual churches themselves, and I don't think you can blame that for what I'm about to describe, but it certainly doesn't help, is that folks today often think nothing of changing their churches very easily. They think nothing of challenging their pastor when he teaches them from the word or going to a home fellowship and ripping up and down what the pastor teaches or what the church has been saying. And if they don't like it, they just jump right on to the next one or we'll just spend months or even years waiting to find a church to go to. I don't really need it because I've got all this stuff. That's not a good situation. 
You've got people I've encountered, not any of you, I'm not pointing anybody out, but I've seen this, where the same people that have always got something negative to say to their pastor or their worship leader or the children's ministry director, you say one unkind thing about their favorite Christian author or singer, and man, they're going to blast you with a book-length post on Facebook or whatever it is. And I think that it's a little backwards. It is my conviction that if it has not happened already, Christian mass media is replacing the local congregation in the hearts of the church. The love and the loyalty that should be going to the people sitting next to you, to your pastor, to your friends that attend the same church week in and week out with you, that is instead going to our favorite online preachers, our favorite worship leaders, the books, the authors that we read. And I think this is especially pernicious in two ways. First of which is in doctrine, where people will be chasing some either orthodox or oftentimes weird theological trend online. They soak themselves in it. They saturate in it. They look at all these pastors and all these writers and authors. Then their own pastor, who knows them and has known them for years, maybe wants to bring a point of correction to them or says something that isn't right in line with it, and the pastor just gets kicked to the side. They look down their noses at him like, oh, he doesn't know what he's talking about. He hasn't read. He doesn't know. He's not aware of the current situation. Or it happens in the way of morals, too. Or people in your actual life want to speak to you, your pastor, your friend, your home fellowship leader, whatever, just a partner in ministry and say, hey, I'm seeing this in your life. I don't know this is good for you. And that gets dismissed. That gets rejected. That maybe even causes someone to leave and go somewhere else because we're getting all of that from people that we've found online or from books that we've read or from some preacher that we're never going to meet. And you can see the danger of that. Because while I'm sure most, and I would say most, of these singers and podcasters and pastors, they're, they're godly people. I'm sure they are. I'm sure they love the Lord. I'm sure they're doing like we do. We put things online and all that. So I, I, I'm not criticizing what they're doing. But it's dangerous for us to give our love and our loyalty to people who have no love or loyalty for us. And it's not that they wouldn't, but they can't because they don't know us. You're never going to look that man in the eye. You're never going to actually sit down and talk with that woman. Or if you do, it's going to be for just a few moments at, at some event or something like that. Not only that, but we can't examine their character. We can't find out, are they the same way in person as they are in their YouTube channel? And they're so far away from us. Even if everything they say is right, that person doesn't know you and can't rebuke you and correct you and can't tell you when you're taking one of their ideas and running way too far with it and getting out of balance with it. That person can't come to you and tell you, hey, I think you need to chill on my videos for a little while. I think you need to stop reading my books and get back to your Bible for a little bit. Because these singers and authors and whoever, they all present to us a carefully crafted image a lot of times it's an image that has been handcrafted by marketers. I'm more familiar with the worship music scene in that way, where they'll, they'll take somebody who is talented or beautiful and put them on the album cover or put them on the stage, and they can sell albums and records that way. And then something happens, and they fall away, and it turns out they've been living like a reprobate for years. Well, how did nobody find out? Well, they were a business for that company making the money, and it, it was beneficial to them to make sure everybody thought that they were, you know, white as snow when it came to the way they lived their lives. And we should be aware of that. That doesn't mean that you've got to be super suspicious of everybody, but you've got to know it. You've got to know that it happens. 
Now let me be fair here. Let me, let me just pause for a second and be fair because there are some positives to this. I'm going to talk about the negatives today, but there are some positives. One positive is we believe in the priesthood of all believers as Christians. We believe that there are people all over the world, not just right here. We're not like the first church of the right on that knows everything and everybody else is wrong. There are lots of great people, and it's a benefit to be able to hear teaching from pastors all over the world and read their books, and th that's a great thing. We're also Protestants. We believe that every now and then the church needs a good shakeup, and sometimes it's good to hear something from outside your own little bubble that maybe can point out some things that you're missing. That's good. Those are good things. But we also need to know that if we're not seeing it for ourselves, it's dangerous. And, and the problem is not just that we don't see it for ourselves and we can't evaluate these people, but we are allowing that to replace our own brothers and sisters and our own leaders and our own elders that the Lord has given to us in our situation. One celebrity pastor, and I, I don't care to name names because I don't, it's not a, important, but there was one celebrity pastor not long ago who wrote a book and put all these things out there about, I've been doing ministry wrong for years. For decades, I've been doing it wrong. I've been incorrect. And this is the way I did it, but that's not good. And it's caused these problems. This is the way it ought to be done. And it was one of those things where you read it and it's like, well, yeah, <laughs> it should be obvious to you. And saying things like, no one's doing it this way. And I'm like, yes, we are. I know lots of people that are doing it right and are doing it this way. And rather than saying, hey, guys, I've been doing this for years. Maybe don't follow me because I, I, I don't really seem to know what I'm doing. Go to your own churches. Find someone that's doing it this way. Instead, he said, I'm launching a new movement and a new thing, and you can donate to it here, and everybody come follow me, and I want to see a million churches planted. This. Hold on a second. You just told me you did ministry wrong for decades, and you want me to come and follow you now? I think it, it shows us, and I don't want to dog him. That's why I'm not giving his name. But it's like, then why are we following after people like that? Because you can't check. You can't be there. You can't know him. But you can find small little local churches like ours that don't have any national recognition that are trying very hard to do it right. And if all we're looking at is way up here and we don't look down to what's right in front of us, we can miss it. A lot of people will come into this church or any other church and they're all hopped up on something they've read and like, you know, no one in the church is doing blank, blank, blank. I'm like, well, we do. We do it on Thursday nights or, you know, we do it on Sunday mornings or you should be there on the third Wednesday or whatever it is. Americans have celebrities. That's just kind of our thing, right? We have actors and musicians and sports heroes and politicians and now social media influencers, although I can't stand that name. <laughs> but that's not the model we've been given in the church. It's one thing to have your favorite sports heroes. It's another thing to allow some celebrity Christian to replace your own local church, your own brothers and sisters, your own pastor or elders. That's not a model that we should import into the church. Because in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, it says, The time is coming, and I'd say it's now, when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. We will curate our own little self-church. And yeah, we go to church on Sundays or I go to this thing on Wednesdays, but you know, I could go anywhere really because the thing where I get all of my spiritual time and all of my spiritual food 
is not from these places. That's not good and it's not biblical. Because what we've seen happen over and over again is people that folks have committed themselves to and dedicated their lives to being their disciples, turns out, oh yeah, for years I wasn't even following Jesus. And we learn in this passage today that we're going to read, what kind of leaders are worth following? Paul is going to explain to these elders how he did it. He's going to charge them to do the same thing. And he's going to warn them about false teachers that are going to come in and do the wrong thing. And I'm not going to harp on this, this topic of Christian celebrity and mass media. I'm not going to harp on that today. But I do think it's very relevant to what Paul's going to say. And I, I hope that we will allow ourselves to see their example and the love they had for Paul and the commitment they had to one another, and that it will encourage us and inspire us to want to have that same love and that same devotion to one another. And rather than feeling like we've got to go somewhere else because this just isn't the way I like it, saying, you know what, this is who God has given to me. These are the people God has put in my life. These are the elders and leaders that God has put over me, so I'm excited to be a part of that. So let's move on to verse 18. He's called these elders to him and get down to verse 21. When they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul begins by referring to his own example and how he had conducted himself while he was in Asia, and probably sick of me saying it, but this is not Asia the continent. This is Asia the Roman province, which is modern-day Turkey, largely. And he's called these elders to meet him for what he believes will be his final farewell. Because as we'll see in this passage, the Lord had revealed to Paul that he was going to be imprisoned in Jerusalem. And so he's wanting to hand over the reins to these elders. And that word for elder is presbyteros. It's where we get the word Presbyterian. An elder. It just means an older man, but of course it refers to the office of elder. And it came to mean in the church that a Presbyterian system is a system where there's a council or a group of elders that lead the church. And this is who he's talking to. Paul was always very careful to appoint elders and leaders in the churches. In Titus chapter 1, verse 5, the whole reason he wrote the book of Titus, he says, I sent you to Crete so that you could appoint elders in every city. This seemed to be kind of Paul's MO. He would go to a city, and if he didn't get there long enough to actually appoint elders, he'd leave one man, like Luke in Philippi or Titus in Crete, until men could be raised up who could lead the church. It's very trendy and cool to say, we don't need leaders in the church. It's not about a structure, man. It's just about being together. Why do we got to have a system? Why do we got to have a hierarchy? Well, because the Lord said that we needed one. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. You know that I'm going to have to give an account for your soul? I'm going to have to stand before God. God's going to say, okay, let's talk about Steve. This is how he turned out. What do you have to say for yourself? Those who will have to give an account 
second half of that verse says, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Do you really want your pastor to have to stand before God and say, now, tell me about, put your name in there. And the pastor goes, whew, well, I mean, we did it. I think she's here. Because then the Lord's going to call you up and he's going to say, hey, I put that leader, I put that elder, I put that ministry leader over you. And I mentioned your name and it says they did it with groaning. So what gives? Already you can see the danger of when we try to create for ourselves our own little circle of leadership and influence. Because it's not always on purpose, but what we're doing is we're, we're slipping the leadership of the church. We're slipping the reins off and we're getting all of the same benefits with none of the responsibility. You, know, you listen to preachers online. And to be clear, I, I listen to preachers online every day of the week. Okay? A lot of dead preachers, but I still listen to a lot of preachers. <laughs> but if you just focus on that, and they're your highest loyalty, when an actual elder or home fellowship leader or whatever comes to you and tries to instruct you, then you say... I don't have to listen to you. You're just, you're, you're just at that church that I go to, but you're not my pastor or you're not my leader. It's no laughing matter to be a leader in God's church. Paul reminds them here. He says, remember my own example? Why does he want them to refer to his example? Two reasons. Number one, he wants them to follow his example. And number two, he's got some tough things to say and he wants to remind them, I have earned the right to say this to you. It's important. Paul, you'll remember, he said he came to Asia after his time in Corinth. He had stayed in Corinth for a year and a half. Remember, he got chased out of Philippi, chased out of Thessalonica, chased out of Berea, went down to Athens, went down to Corinth, and stayed there for a year and a half. Then he went to Ephesus and ended up staying there for three years. So they know him probably better than just about any of the churches he planted. He was teaching in the hall of Tyrannus. You remember that every day he would teach for hours and establishing the church there. And there's all these phrases that he uses to describe himself. You, you could do a, a conference on this verse, so we've got to go quick. But underlining these things, writing them down, and meditating on them later shows you not only the kind of leader that you should be following, but also the kind of leader you ought to be if God is calling you to that. It says in verse 19, From the first day I set foot there, serving the Lord. Who's he serving? The Lord. He is not a hired gun for the church. And there are pastors that are hired guns for the churches. Whatever y'all want me to say, that's what I'm going to say. You don't like me saying that? Tell me you don't like it and I won't say it anymore. How do you want me to do ministry? How do you want me to instruct people? You'd rather me I, I don't rebuke people? You got it. This is going to be a no rebuke pastor. There are people like that. But Paul's like, I'm not here to serve just you. He was a servant of the people, but before any of that, he was a servant of the Lord. That word for serving is douluo in Greek. It's the same root word of doulos, which means slave. Because I was a slave, a bond servant to the Lord, and that is what drove me to you. That is important because if a pastor is serving the people first and not the Lord first, then he's going to put the people's priorities on top and the Lord's priorities are going to go second. But you all know as well as I do, if you love the Lord first, it makes you a better pastor. It makes you a better husband or wife. It makes you a better mother or father. Paul had it right. He was serving the Lord. Second of all, he served in humility. 
This is the Apostle Paul. You're telling me he was humble? Apparently so. This is the guy where they used to steal his sweatbands and demons would come out if they touched the sweatbands. And he was humble in humility. I remember a very famous author came to our church in Virginia one time. And he teaches in a different church every week, you know, sometimes multiple times a week. And he's lucky that he does it that way. Because if he were to teach more than one week or more than one month or more than one year, not a single person would put up with his arrogance. I couldn't believe it. You've got to be kidding me. He's in there talking about himself. He's got a lot of good things to say, but he cloaks it all in, you heard it from me, so you know it's good. And it was like, you've got to be kidding me. Humility is a rare thing to find, but we've got to make sure that we find it. And there are people who will use their position as the pastor as a point of self-aggrandizement. You know, I'm the man of God. You've got to follow me. You're lucky to be here because I'm going places. So if you're with me, you know that you're going to be going places too. That's not biblical at all. He says he served with tears. With tears. I'm not a crier, as anybody who's known me for any amount of time knows. There are some pastors that... that Man, they live that out easily. And they're just godly men that have those hearts that are sensitive to the Lord and just very easily are moved to tears. I'm not that guy. But I understand the anguish of soul that a pastor goes through for the sheep of his flock. That's so hard. There's nothing more heartbreaking than when you get a phone call from somebody who's letting you know about a situation in their life or that person that you've poured into for years has decided that they're going to ignore all of your advice and go the exact opposite direction. Oh, it's so hard. Or when you know, I mean, when you've done ministry for a while, you can see it coming. Everything might be seeming well on the surface, but as you have these conversations, people start to respond just a little less and a little less, and you go, oh, man, there's a blow-up coming. And you're sitting there praying on your knees Lord, please don't let them do this. And often the Lord delivers those people out of it, but sometimes the crash comes, there's not a thing you could have done about it. Or sometimes you pour your life into somebody. You take their midnight phone calls. You go over to their house when they need your help. You're meeting with them every week. You're praying for them all the time. You're taking all their texts and their emails and all, you're helping them work through their situations. And then someday they come to you and like, I just don't feel like my needs are being met here. So I'm going to move on somewhere else. Oh, you guys. Rips your heart out. I'm not a crier, but in those situations, who could blame anybody for weeping over the church? There's a story that I love, and I cannot pass by talking about tears without mentioning this. But in the old days, in the Salvation Army, back in the day, before they were just the Santa Clauses on the sidewalk, and they were like the militant Christians walking through the streets, there were these two women that were sent to a desperately poor part of London. And they were trying to do ministry there, and it just was not happening. So after a long time, they send a telegram to William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, and they said, look, we've been here a long time. We're ready to move on. Nobody's listening. Can you put us anywhere else? And he sent back a telegram with two words in it, and he said, try tears. And they said, okay. And they prayed for the Lord to give them a burden and a heart for the people to the point where they were weeping for them in their prayers, and the Lord brought about a revival in their situation. Cutting a very cool story very short, but... I love that. Try tears. Psalm 126.6 says that he who goes out weeping 
bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. You want to follow a pastor or a leader who cares for you, who cares about you. Maybe they're not a weeper, but they care, and you can tell they care, and their heart is knitted to yours, and that's who Paul was. It says that he served with trials because of the Jews. Now, the book of Acts does not give us any specific plot in Ephesus that the Jews launched against him. The biggest trouble he faced there was from the idol makers, remember, who had lost all their money because the idols were not being sold. But we know that the Judaizers plagued Paul everywhere he went. And we just had seen last week that they were trying to get him on the boat and then kill him on the boat and take all his money. So Paul had to serve through all that. A pastor is going to have enemies, enemies within the church and enemies without the church. Problem with enemies within the church, you often don't know that they're your enemies until they make your move, and that's part of the whole tears thing. And you'll have to endure trials. Or if you don't, you're, you're called a hireling, as Jesus said it. Jesus said in John 10, he said, I'm the good shepherd. I look out for the sheep. He says, but a man who runs away when the wolves comes, he's just a hireling. He's just there to take the money and run. And he said, I didn't sign up for wolves. Well, as a pastor, you kind of did. Carl Barth, who's a famous theologian. I think he was wrong about a lot of things, but he was a very famous theologian. He was asked, because he was writing, was so popular, he was asked to come and become a pastor of this one church. And he responded to them and he said, I did that once and I failed so miserably, I'm not going to try it again. He said, the prospect of going back and being a pastor is really fearful to me. And if I remember correctly that quote, he specifically mentioned children's ministry as something that he never wanted to do ever again. <laughs> William Barclay, who was a professor and a commentator and theologian, <laughs> he said, when I began my ministry, I was a pastor and I failed. And I can honestly say that that part of the work was the most difficult and exhausting that I ever had to do. He called it humiliating, his experience in the pastorate. It takes a special kind of individual to slog through the trials that a pastor goes through. And there are great men of God that are not called to be pastors, or maybe they are and they don't stick it out. And I, I don't want to cast any shade on professors, but I knew a lot of professors during my time in Bible college who were bitter, failed pastors. Gone to school, gotten all their degrees, done their internship, go out and fell flat on their face and couldn't endure the trials, so they quit and came back and became professors. Not all of them, obviously, but a lot of them. It's hard. There are trials that a pastor goes through. But Paul continued through them. He continued to preach to the people about repentance and faith. That's salvation, right? Repentance from sin, faith in Jesus Christ. He was focused. He was focused on the message. He didn't let himself get distracted by vain things. I was preaching in the houses and I was preaching in public. I was preaching about Jesus everywhere I went. So many pastors get caught up in so many things. That preaching the gospel either becomes a nuisance or a hindrance. I'm so caught up in this thing that we're doing, and it might be a good thing, that if I try to preach the gospel in the midst of it, it'll shrink and it'll fail, and we're so financially tied to this thing that the gospel has become a risk, so let's just back off a little bit. Paul didn't do that. All of these things combined together, being humble and serving with tears and through trials and being focused on the gospel, it all describes a good shepherd. Jesus Christ was the good shepherd. And we as pastors are called to be good shepherds too. 1 Peter chapter 5, 
verses 2 through 3. That's what the word pastor is, by the way. Pastor kind of sounds like pasture, right? Where the sheep would be. We're shepherds. 1 Peter 5 says, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. I understand the burden of being a pastor. And I'll tell you what, I've only done it for a couple years now, but it is totally different from being a youth pastor to being a senior pastor. It just, the scale goes up. But it's too important to do it poorly. It'd be so easy just to skimp out on a lot of this stuff and structure it in such a way that I never really have to interact with anybody. I never really have to endure the trials. I have other people that handle that for me. But it's too important to do it poorly. And I've been given too many great examples, blessedly, in my life to do it badly. These are the kinds of men that we ought to be placing ourselves under. These are the kind of people that are worth following. Paul reminds them of his example. Not only, remember, because he's giving them something to follow, but because he has something to say. And he's like, now you remember how I lived among you. I've earned the right to say what I'm about to say. So let's keep going. Verse 22. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom, will see my face again. So this is the trip to Jerusalem. And he reveals, not only am I going to Jerusalem, but the Holy Spirit has been communicating to me that trials, afflictions, arrest awaits me there. We're going to discuss that in much more detail next week with the story of Agabus. The long and short of it is that Paul had indeed heard from the Lord, and the prophets in the church had heard from the Lord that Paul was going to be arrested. Unfortunately, they were drawing the wrong application out of what God had told them. God was revealing Paul is going to be imprisoned. They therefore said, therefore, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. But Paul was constrained by the Spirit. God was saying Paul is going to be imprisoned, but I need him to go to Jerusalem. So we're going to talk about that more next week. But the point is, Paul thought he was never going to see them again. And it's, it's hard to tell if he was right or if Paul was just being pessimistic here. Because if you read 1 Timothy, there are some passages that would indicate that Paul did return to Ephesus. So either way, it's not as if it messes with the inerrancy of Scripture or anything like that. Either Paul thought he was never going to see them again or he never did. Either way, it doesn't change the story here. But look at how he says this. I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. <laughs> Come on, Paul, you got to love yourself, man. You can't love other people till you love yourself, Paul. That's not in the Bible, by the way. <laughs> Paul was not about to skip the trip to Jerusalem to save his own skin. He was not going to do that. Because Jesus had said in Matthew 10, 39, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus set us the example, right? Jesus said, I'm going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be tortured and hung on a cross and all that. And Peter takes him aside. Jesus, let me talk to you for a minute. Hey, don't, don't say things like that. 
That's not going to happen to you. Far be it from you, Lord. You're the Messiah. Don't you remember I told you? Because I had that great moment where I recognized it. And Jesus said what? Get behind me, Satan. He says, Peter, do not try to make me love my life more than I love you. Do not try to make me love life more than I love obedience to my Father. We're supposed to die to ourselves. Spiritually, we die every day. You don't just do what you want to do. You do what the Lord wants you to do. You die to yourself. But we also need to make sure that this is indeed very literal. That you need to be prepared that if the moment were to come for you to give up your life for Jesus physically, that you're up for it. And you know, in the early church, this was a harsh reality. That for most of those Christians, it was just a matter of time until a knock was going to come at their door and they were going to get taken away and tortured or killed for their faith. And in some parts of the world, it's still that way. Be praying for our brothers and sisters in China because it seems like things are stepping up over there, as far as I can tell from here. You read some of the early, early church fathers. I'm going to read some of it in a second. But they, they talked as if, we all know it's coming. You just got to be ready for your day. We're all going to be martyred. This is kind of the way they talked to each other. We're all going to die. You just got to be ready for that moment. We think of death as such a loss and such a waste. But you know what? For a Christian, as Paul would say later, to die is gain. To fully gain Christ. To fully enter into the salvation of our souls in heaven. And I hope that if we're ever brought to that place where we have to face death for Jesus Christ, that there's, there's going to be fear. There's going to be trepidation. It's a hard thing. Jesus was sweating great drops of blood, remember? But in your heart, there's that little joy and that little excitement that starts to flutter like, this is it. I'm about to see Jesus. It's going to be all over. You start to think to yourself, what's it going to be like to not have temptation to sin ever again? Speaking of church fathers, St. Ignatius wrote seven letters to the church that were not scripture, but they're called the apostolic fathers because they were the church fathers who would have known the apostles. St. Ignatius, he was arrested and was being taken to Rome for trial, the Bishop of Antioch. And he wrote seven letters to the churches. And in the letter he wrote to the Romans, this is what he said while he was on his way to get killed for his faith, where he eventually died in the arena. He said, may I have the pleasure of the wild beasts that have been prepared for me. And I pray that they prove to be prompt with me. I will even coax them to devour me quickly, not as they have done with some whom they were too timid to touch. And if when I am willing and ready they are not, I will force them. He's saying, if that lion isn't hungry when they throw me into the arena, I'm going to start messing with that lion until he eats me. Fire and cross and battles with wild beasts, mutilation, mangling, wrenching of bones, the hacking of limbs, the crushing of my whole body, cruel tortures of the devil. Let these come upon me. Only let me reach Jesus Christ. Neither the ends of the earth nor the kingdoms of this age are of any use to me. It is better for me to die for Jesus Christ than to rule over the ends of the earth. Him I seek who died on our behalf. Him I long for, who rose again for our sake. The pains of birth are upon me. He was excited. He's like, I'm going to die for Jesus Christ. I'm going to get to see Jesus. And if that lion isn't in the mood, well, I'm going to have words with that lion because I'm ready to see Jesus. That's the attitude a man of God has to have. If you have already died, there's nothing anybody can tempt you with. There's nothing anybody can threaten you with. 
And God can finally use you. God can use people like that who don't care. I've already died with Christ, so if I have to die physically, well, it's just, you know, living out what I've already determined. And a pastor has to understand this. A leader in the church has to understand this. Because as Paul makes it clear, we have a calling, not a career. It says that Paul received from the Lord a course and a ministry. Paul's like, it was not my idea to do this. Remember back in chapter 9, verse 16, when the Lord struck him blind when he was on his way to Damascus, and Ananias is sent to go pray for him, and the Lord told Ananias, I have shown him all the things he must suffer for my sake. So Paul's like, I've been called by the Lord, and he's telling me I've got to go to Jerusalem, and we know eventually he'd go to Rome. So he's like, what am I going to do? Say no? I think every pastor knows this calling. Every missionary, every minister of the gospel knows the call of God. And it's very hard to explain it maybe to people who have not experienced it. But if a pastor or whoever has not felt the call of God to ministry, then I question whether they should be in ministry at all. I really do. I remember the moment when I was called to ministry vividly. I cut calculus and went to the park. And I was reading through Matthew, and I read the passage where it says, Pray for the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into the harvest. And I prayed out loud, Lord, I don't want to pray for laborers. I want to be a laborer. I'd never said that or thought that before. I was like, okay, so what do we have here? My whole life was different from that moment on. Charles Spurgeon, who's a preacher in London for many years, he said, if a man can do anything other than the ministry, he probably should. I can see myself being a pastor or a salesman or a contractor or whatever. Like, then, then don't do ministry. And I would agree with him. James chapter 3, verse 1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. How many? Not many. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. You want to have a tougher time on Judgment Day? Be a pastor. If you can do anything else and be happy, then do it. But people like me who have been called to ministry, I, I can't imagine doing anything else. It's like Jeremiah says, there's that fire in your bones that pushes you and compels you. And the people who deny and reject the call of God, it'll come popping back like 10 years later. And they're like, I, oh, I've got to do this. Men who join the ministry to make money, don't follow those people. First of all, you're in the wrong business if you want to make money. People, when, they, when I tell people I'm a pastor or my wife says she's a pastor's wife, there's only two reactions. They either believe we're dirt poor and we'll never have any nice things. Or, oh, that's great. You're going to have nice cars, and you're going to have a huge house, and neither one of those things is true. Or if they want to make a name for themselves, that's dangerous. Because then you, you ever talk to one of those guys or hear somebody preach, and it's like, he's not really preaching to me. He's just kind of preaching out there to be known and to be seen. Or they want to build something big. The guys will do that. They're entrepreneurs. They want to see things grow and get large. And so like, let's start a church and it'll be the biggest church. Nothing wrong with big churches, but if that's what you're going in for, you got a problem. Or if you get into ministry out of spite, that doesn't happen. Oh, yes, it does. And if we can get real for a second, the Bible has told us that we, he does not permit women to teach or to exercise authority over a man. There are a lot of women who have forced their way into seminaries, forced their ways into the pastorate out of spite for those verses. Tell me I can't do something? Get out of my way. I'm going to do it anyway. And then their whole ministry revolves around 
making sure everybody knows that they don't care what you think. Let's leave aside the doctrine of that for a second. That's a horrible reason to get into ministry, to be the pastor of a church. The doctrine matters, but that attitude should be a red flag for us, I think. Paul believed that God had given him a race to run. All I can hope to do is run this race well. The path is marked for me. I've got to either run it, or as he says in 1 Corinthians 9, be disqualified. So I might as well run it well. I'm going to have to do this. You might as well do a good job. And there is, y'all, a temptation to make a career out of the ministry. I've been to those conferences. I've heard those guys speak. I've had these nice guys come in to the office or send me emails and is like, hey, so here are some ways you can promote yourself and get your name out there. And this is how you grow your name and your brand. And you can make some extra money because I know you've got a small church and they can't really take care of you. So here's how you, that's dangerous, you guys. Guys who want to make a career of of preaching at big conferences or want to be famous authors or want to get their ideas out there or get their face on, that happens. And it's a temptation, let me tell you. Because it starts from a good place. If you think God's given you something to say, you want to be able to say it. But what does Satan do? He comes, yeah, you're right. You do have something to say. Better than all those other jokers, right? You're the smart. You should be in front of everybody. These people in this little church, they don't respect you. You are meant for bigger things. You could have made money if you didn't follow Jesus. It only makes sense for you to make money now. It's a temptation. This is why we have to recognize that it's a commission. It's a call from God. Because if it's just about me, then I might as well make a career out of it. There's something special about the call to ministry. Finding a man who has been called of God to follow, it's a pretty safe bet. Somebody who has a commission from the Lord on their life, that's the kind of person you want to be following. Not somebody who just thought it would be cool to be a pastor. And they're out there. So Paul's on his way to prison. He believes he's going to his death. But he does not shrink from it because God's call was on his life. He's like, it's not my life. God has already bought my life with the blood of his son Jesus, so I have to go. Verse 26 and 27, all of these little chunks, like you could preach a whole message on them. So I feel like I'm having to go so fast, but it's important. Verse 26, therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. I am innocent of the blood of all. What does that mean? Well, if you turn with me, you can turn if you like, or you can listen to Ezekiel chapter 3. This is probably the passage Paul is referring to, or the, at the very least, it's the same idea that he's referring to. In Ezekiel 3, when God called the prophet Ezekiel to ministry, he says in verses 17 through 21, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die for his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. I'm not going to read the rest of it because it's, it's the same idea. He's like, I've made you my watchman. If I tell you, to warn that person, and you don't, it's going to be on you. So Paul comes here and he says, I'm, I'm in the clear. Because I've told y'all everything. The whole counsel of God. That word for counsel is bule. It means plan or purpose of God. I've told you everything. And that's the role of a shepherd. 
to speak God's word to the people, to not neglect any of it. It is so common and easy, I might add, for a pastor to teach only his favorite topics. A lot of times it's done unintentionally. You're just sitting around thinking, you know what, I really like talking about this. Let's talk about it for 50 weeks. You know? Or anytime you've, you're, you're running late, you're running short on time, you go right back to the same things you always teach. Or you avoid the things that are hard or confrontational. I'm not going to talk about that. Give me a break. A whole Sunday just on that? I can't do that. Very easy. But it's a heavy responsibility that I have and that pastors have that we've got to proclaim all of it. The whole counsel. Everything God has said. This is that stricter judgment that James was talking about. You've got to teach all of it. Now, our approach to this as Calvary Chapel is to teach through the Bible verse by verse from start to finish. We've done Luke. We're almost done with Acts. We're doing Genesis on Wednesday nights. Probably going to go to Thessalonians after this so that we can get some good eschatology in there. Because if I've taught the whole Bible, I'm pretty much sure I've covered everything. (laughs) Doesn't let you skip stuff. There are weeks, y'all, I want to skip stuff. Not because I don't want to talk about it, but because it's like I have a conversation with this person on Friday and that's what we're talking about on Sunday. Like, they're going to think that I'm preaching at them. I hope you all know I would never do that. If that happens, you need to just trust that the Lord knew what was going on and is trying to speak to you. We're in chapter 20. Next week we're in chapter 21. Saves me a lot of trouble. (laughs) So if chapter 21 is a little in your face... I wasn't thinking of your face when I was studying. (laughs) And not only that, but I I try to supplement the passages that we're teaching with with some other things that we might be missing. For example, you go through Luke and you go through Acts. They're not going to cover every topic in Scripture, and they're long books. So if we're in there for a while and we haven't talked about this or that topic, then sometimes we'll take a break and let's discuss this. Or if there's a passage that just gets into it a little bit, I might make more out of it because I want to make sure that we're getting everything. Because I I can't just do it on a 10-year plan because not everyone's going to be here for 10 years or someone will show up in year seven. You know what I'm talking about. Teaching, so important. Everybody wants to minimize teaching in the church. It's not new. It's been around forever. But you cannot read the New Testament and come away with any other idea that doctrine and teaching and preaching matter. Our whole religion is based on faith, right? So what you believe is kind of important. 2 Timothy, you know these verses. 2 Timothy 3.16 through chapter 4, verse 2. All scripture, how much scripture? All scripture is breathed out by God, theopneustos, inspired, and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Paul says, all scripture is profitable. So Timothy Preach all of it. Preach the whole council. People today want the church to be a lot of things. They want it to be a social club. They want it to be an activist organization. They want it to be just somewhere where we all come and hang out with one another. A way to maintain the moral fiber of the country. 
But whenever we do that, teaching and doctrine always go by the wayside. Always happens. We're not going to let that happen here. Lately, I've even been convicted on this front, not as if I've been doing something wrong, but I've been getting the itch that says, you know, I need to make sure that we're, we're, we're getting these big doctrinal themes that, we're, that we discuss, because we teach through the Bible, so we get it in context, but it's also good to synthesize it and say, this is what the whole Bible says about this. So this Wednesday, we're going to talk more along those lines. We'll talk about the covenant that God makes with Noah. We're going to look at God's covenants throughout the scriptures. It's too important to leave anything out. And this is Paul's big point. I've done everything I ever needed to. I didn't leave anything on the field. Right? Blood, sweat, and tears. That's all Paul left in Ephesus. But it's the same way for us. The whole counsel of God. Verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves, talking to the elders, and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. There it is again. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So now he's moving to the charge to these elders. And he tells them to do two things. Pay careful attention, which is prosecco in Greek. It's kind of cool. That word was used metaphorically to mean bring the ship into the dock. It was like the tugboat's job was to prosecco, to bring the ship in. So he's saying, guide these people. Guide them in. Guide them to where they need to be. And to care for, which is the word poimino, and it means literally to shepherd. Care for the flock. Shepherd the flock. And it says that the Holy Spirit has made them overseers. Earlier we saw they were called elders, which is the word presbyteros, where we get the word Presbyterian. This word overseer is episkopos, which is where we get the word episcopalian from. It means an overseer. It means Typically today, an Episcopalian form of church government is when there's one guy. Instead of a council of people, there's one guy. We have kind of a blended thing that we do here. And it's important to know, in the New Testament, these terms were not so clearly defined at this point. It was, you were an overseer, you were an elder. Well, Paul, are you an overseer or an elder? He's like, well, I'm kind of both. What's the difference? It was all from God. And he reminds them that God bought the church with the blood of Jesus, so that's got to affect the way that you treat those people. In short, they're to lead like Paul did because there are false teachers, wolves coming into the flock who will not spare the flock, who will not care for the flock, and they've got to watch out for them. Jesus said in Matthew 7, verses 15 and 16, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Paul says, from the outside and the inside, do you see that? From among you, and that others will come in from the outside. With evil ideas trying to draw away the disciples of Christ. False teachers. How do you recognize a false teacher? Well, that's a whole message on its own. That's probably a series of messages, actually. 
But let's just contrast it to what Paul's been talking about. Paul's constant public admonishment from the word, his teaching of the whole counsel of God, the openness that Paul had. A false teacher never wants to tell you what they really think about something, especially not the first day. I got stopped by some cultists outside of a Barnes & Noble one time, and they had one weird thing they wanted to talk about, and they didn't want to tell me anything else. They didn't want to tell me the name of their church. They didn't want to tell me the name of their pastor. They didn't want to tell me what other books they were reading, where they got this stuff from. They didn't want to tell me what they believed about certain basic doctrines. That's how false teachers work. When a Jehovah's Witness comes to your door, they're not going to tell you all the weird stuff on day one. They're going to give you some very plausible things, and they're going to say, oh, we believe the Bible just like you do. We believe Jesus is important, and he's our Savior just like you do. But you've got to know that even if they're using the same words, they mean different things by those words than you do. This is what false teachers do. It always sounds good at first. Always sounds good. Because they'll, they'll give you something that is so bland and basic, no one could possibly reject it. Well, you don't believe in that? What's wrong with you? And I've gotten in, not in trouble, but I've had awkward conversations before where somebody will say, I don't see why we've got to be opposed to this. They're, they're pro-whatever. And I'm like, yeah, but that's not what they mean when they say that. What they mean by that is this. Let me give you a very contemporary example. And this isn't so much in the church, but it's creeping into the church with all the racial tensions that are going on in our country. Everybody is very sensitive and wants to combat racism and combat all this stuff. And what is concerning to me is a lot of people are jumping onto a ship with people that have all kinds of wacky, wild, radical ideas because we like what the banner says at the front. Oh, they're opposed to racism. Okay, but they also believe all this crazy, wacky stuff over here. Oh, they just want equity and equality. As if there's anybody who's like, I'm opposed to equality. <laughs> you know, there are all these things that sound really nice and they sound really good. But it's like, yeah, but they also don't believe in gender. You know, they also think that the church is an oppressive institution. They also believe that missionaries should be criminalized. They believe all kinds of crazy stuff. And it's like, well, we can agree on this. No, we can't because I don't want anything to do with that. I don't need them to do what the Bible has already taught me to do. Well, if you don't stand with them, then you don't stand for... I don't want to talk to you, okay? I only need Jesus to stand for anything. Watch out for that. I'm not naming names on purpose because there's so many of these things. All you need is the scripture to stand for something important. And watch out what groups you link yourself to. Because it might sound great on the front, but it always sounds great on the front. There's, you know, false teachers that will come into the church and say, hey, I, I believe that we should respect the Jewish heritage of the church. Hey, rock and roll. I'm all on board with that. Yeah. And you know what? We should probably worship on Saturdays. Oh, I'm fine with worshiping on Saturday. We should only worship on Saturday. If you worship on Sunday, you're going to hell. If you don't keep the law, you're going to hell. Whoa, whoa, whoa. But what happens is, People who are not careful, that guy comes in and he's saying all the right things and he's not saying what he really thinks about stuff. Now he's a home fellowship leader. Now he's teaching on Saturdays or whatever. And next thing you know, boom. That's why the Bible tells us not to lay hands on anybody quickly. Make sure you get to know them and you know what's going on underneath all that stuff. <laughs> it's kind of like in, in Samaria where Simon comes up to Peter and says, hey, 
That's a pretty cool thing you did with the Holy Spirit. How'd you do that? Like, I mean, how'd I do that? Oh, okay, okay, I get it, I get it. You need a couple Benjamin Franklins to help you explain how you do the Holy Spirit trick. And Peter's like, your money perish with you, man. You got to watch out for that. False teachers never tell you what they want on day one. They gain your trust, they gain your admiration, and then they leverage that admiration in order to get you to accept their new ideas. And here's one thing I can tell you. If you are ever listening to a teacher or whatever in any arena who starts to whisper negative things about your pastor and your church, are you, you know, they're, they're kind of odd, they're kind of strange, don't you think? It doesn't seem like you really understand what's going on. That's Absalom stuff. That's, that's David's son in the Old Testament that stole the heart of the people and launched a coup. We always got to be suspicious of that. Or people who all of a sudden have brand new solutions to age-old problems. It's so easy, and we just figured it out. Oh, really? Paul didn't know about it. Augustine and Martin Luther and John Wesley didn't know about it, but you figured it out. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 2 says, But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word, but here it is, by the open statement of the truth. We would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Open statement of the truth. There is no secret hidden 67th book of the Bible that you find out when you become a pastor. Open statements of the truth. A good shepherd is honest and willing to call out false teaching and to handle it decisively. I even grow suspicious and, and keep my eyes open when people want us to compromise on things that aren't like false teaching, but they're just matters of opinion. When people maybe come in and they, they really want me to backpedal my stance on the pre-trib rapture, for example, or they're like, yeah, but I mean, there's nothing wrong with believing this doctrine. And it's like, yeah, you're right, but what are, what are you doing coming in here trying to make a bunch of changes? Because that, it's that attitude that gets me concerned, you know? It's, it's nothing wrong with worshiping here or being a part of it or having discussions, but whenever that happens, that attitude is dangerous. It's the Lord's flock. I don't get to run it my way, and he, she, whoever doesn't get to run it their way. But the good news is, as it says in verse 32, God keeps his church. God's going to take care of his church. False teachers will not always have their day. The Lord's going to be their judge. And Paul calls them to look out for this. Sprinting to the finish here, verse 33. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands, talking about his own hands, ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Here's the last point. A pastor should be working hard and not be out for anyone's money. So many so-called pastors who've made merchandise of the church, standing up there with their diamonds and their fancy cars and, you know, exploiting poor people to give them money and promising them that God will give them a thousand miracles if you give me a thousand dollars. And heaven help those people when they stand before God. But Paul reminds them, he says, I was always working to make tents in order to support myself. This was Paul's choice, although the Bible tells us it didn't have to be that way. Reading this very fast, I know we're out of time, but 1 Corinthians 9, 14 through 15, Paul says, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. 
Paul's saying, pastors are allowed to be paid. They should be paid. People, he says in Timothy, especially who labor in preaching and teaching, they should be paid for what they do. Paul says, I myself am choosing not to be paid because I don't want anybody to be able to accuse me of just doing this for the money. And in 1 Corinthians 9, what he's saying is, I could if I wanted to, but I'm not. And it is hard work to do preaching and teaching right, let me tell you. And in verse 35, he gives a quotation from Jesus that we do not find in the Gospels. Isn't that cool? It's, a, it's another saying of Jesus that gets added. It's like the bonus quote from Jesus. It's better to give than to receive. Either way, if the pastor is being paid or not, he ought to be hardworking, not lazy. Oh, I wish I could be a pastor. You only work one day a week. Ha! <laughs> ha! It's, it's not easy. It's hard. Supporting a pastor financially, why do we do this real quick? It allows him to be well-rested. It allows him to take care of his body. It allows him to have a family life to take time to do long-term planning for the church. This is why it's important to have a staff of other helpers as well. There are so many things that creep in on prayer and the study of the word. And pastors either tend to be sluggards, who either are going to golf and play video games, and I'll just open the passage wherever the Bible falls open and we'll just read it, or to be workaholics. And I tend to fall into that latter category. I used to have my boss dra drag me in at, in Lynchburg and say, Tyler, you have to take vacation days. Well, I, I, there's so much to be done. You have to take vacation days, Tyler. Or I didn't use sick days for like two years, and I got in trouble for that. So you are working too hard, and Jesus told us that we are to take a rest day, and you're not doing it. The church is supposed to support their leaders who have proven to be hard workers, but also to encourage them sometimes to say, hey, take a break. You need to take a break, because you're not going to be any good to us if you're not being good to yourself. Bringing it to an end, 36, when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. There was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. Can you see the love these people had for Paul? He had earned their love. He had earned their respect, and he was passing it on to them. You've got to do that for the people that you love, people that you serve. And I began today by commenting on the state of Christian mass media, celebrity culture. This is what we lose when we fall into all that. If that's our only source of Christian fellowship and Christian teaching, you miss having that, that family as a church where you can fall on each other's necks, as it says there literally, and, and embrace each other and pray with each other and hold each other and walk with each other, not just through the big times, but through all the mundane, boring little times. We ought not to be creating our own little self-churches, but to find congregations and pastors that we can follow eagerly and for our own good. Not only that, but if you spend all your time in the digital church, you can start to think that everything's fallen apart and it's all over. When in fact, there's so many faithful pastors and great churches that are quietly and faithfully laboring and serving. Don't give your love and your loyalty to people who have not earned it from you. And I would ask too, that you pray for me. This is a high calling for me to live up to. And I can honestly say, in all honesty, that this is what I aspire to. And I believe that before the Lord, I am doing my best to live up to that. But I need help. I need all the grace of the Lord, all the power of the Holy Spirit to live up to it. 
I pray that the Lord would knit us together as a family, not just an event center where we all come together a couple times a week, but that we have that same love and that same joy, all centered around the gospel of Jesus Christ and his word. 